Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1. We are continuing to read at page 203 for this reading, which is Lecture 15. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read, renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is either to be reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Prophet, I'm sorry, Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1, which we hope you'd be, you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Verse 7. The lion is come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. The prophet more fully declares the import of the threatening which we briefly considered yesterday. For God said in a former verse that he would bring an evil from the north, and the kind of evil it was to be he now describes, and compares the king of Babylon to a lion, and afterwards, without a figure, he calls him the destroyer of nations. By the similitude of lion, he means that the Israelites would not be able to resist. And when he adds that he would be the desolator of nations, he intimates that they would perish with the rest. For if Nebuchadnezzar was sufficiently able to destroy many nations, how could the Jews escape a similar similar calamity? He shall come, he says, the desolator of nations. But he uses the past tense throughout in order to show the certainty of the prediction, and thus to shake secure men with fear who had become torpid in their hypocrisy. For they would have otherwise deemed all threatenings as nothing, for as long as God spared them, they despised his judgment and promised themselves impunity in their sins. Hence, the prophet, in order to awake them, set the matter matter before them, as though Nebuchadnezzar had already come with a strong and powerful army to 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 lay waste Judea. For he says that a lion had ascended from his hiding places. But the term for the last word means an entangled density, as when trees are entwined together, or when a place is filled with thorns. Footnote. The word thickest, in our version, correctly expresses it. A tangled wood where trees cross and entwine with each other. Editor. End note. End footnote. But the similitude is most suitable, because the Jews never thought that the king of Babylon would come forth from places so remote. For the passing through was difficult, and the expedition attended with great toil. Yet the prophet says that the lion would come from his recesses, and that nothing would hinder him from breaking forth and coming to the open country. He at last concludes by saying that the cities would be laid waste. 
end footnote. I'm sorry, begin footnote. <laughs> Laid waste is the Chaldee sense, but the verb means in Hebrew to germinate, to produce grass, to grow over with grass as ruined cities do. The words which follow without an inhabitant show that this meaning suits here, thy city shall grow over with grass without an inhabitant. The targum is, thy city shall be desolate without an inhabitant. Editor. End footnote. So as to be without an inhabitant. It now follows. Verse 8. For this gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. The prophet sees not yet to exhort his own nation to repent. A more gracious doctrine will presently follow, but here he only reminds them that a most grievous mourning was nigh at hand, for he saw that they were hypocrites, immersed in their own delusions, and could not be assailed by any fear. Hence, he says, that they were greatly mistaken if they thought themselves safe while God was angry with them. Gird yourself in sackcloth, he says, lament and howl, and then follows the reason because the fury of God's wrath was not turned away from them. We indeed know that the ungodly are wont to make God subservient to themselves, as though they could by their perseverance turn aside, I'm sorry, by their own perverseness, turn aside or drive afar off his judgment and restrain, as it were, his hand from, from acting. As then hypocrites are insolent towards God, the prophet says expressly that the fury of his wrath was not turned away, and thus he warns them that they would not be that they would be in every way miserable until they were reconciled to God. We now understand the design of the prophet, for he confirms what the last verse what the last verse contains when he says that a lion had come forth and that a desolator was already nigh. Yea, he confirms what he had said, for there was no hope to them without having God propitious propitious and he declares that God was angry. Hence it follows that all things would prove infelicitous to them. Verse 9. And it shall come to pass at that day, with, saith the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes, and the, and the priests shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. As the royal dignity still continued with the Jews, Though their power is greatly diminished, they, relying on that distinction, hoped that they had a sufficient protection. Hence it was that they were not removed by any denunciation, for the royal power, which remained not altogether secure, and yet so in some degree, was to them like a shield. We also know what pride filled the courtiers, for they extolled their kings, and thus made a show of their prudence and magnanimity. Since then, this foolish notion of the chief men respecting their king and their delusive boasting deceived the Jews, the prophet says, In that day perish shall the heart of the king and the heart of the princes. By heart, he no doubt means the understanding or the mind, as the word is to be taken in many other places. Moses says, God has not yet given you a heart to understand. Deuteronomy uh, 29.4 the Latins also call men hearted, corditos, who excel in intelligence and wisdom. Footnote. Though the most common meaning of heart in the Hebrew word is what is here stated, yet it means also strength, firmness, courage. See Deuteronomy 22.3 and two, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 17.10, Psalms 22.14. 
and this meaning is most suitable to this passage. Editor. End footnote. So then, the prophet shows that it was a vain and deceptive fancy by the people to expect that the king would be an invincible de defense to them. For the king, he says, shall then be deprived of understanding and reason, and the counselors who lay claim to understanding shall be found then to be wholly foolish. There is then no ground for that vain confidence which deceives you. The prophet briefly intended to shake off that false confidence by which the Jews were inebriated when they thought that there was a sure safety in the intelligence of the kings and princes. He says the same thing respecting the priests as well as the prophets as much glory belonged to the priestly order. For the tribe of Levi had not taken that honor to itself, but God himself had set priests over the people. Hence, an opinion prevailed that the priests could not be without understanding and wisdom. With regard to the prophets, Jeremiah no doubt conceded the name to impostors who falsely professed the name of God, and this way of speaking is common in the writings of the prophets. He does not then mean those true and faithful ministers of God who duly executed their office, for those who boasted of the name and the title, and he, and he says of these, that they would be astonished. Footnote. The verse is as follows, And it shall be in that day, saith Jehovah, that perish shall the heart of the king, and the heart of the princes, and confounded shall be the priests, and the prophets shall be astonished. Confounded, that is, like persons at their wit's end, not knowing what to do or what course to take astonished or amazed, that is, at witnessing the reverse of what they had prophesied, prophesied being, filling with, being filled with stunning and stupefying amazement. Editor and footnote. He, in short, deprives the people of that false confidence through which they harden themselves so as not to fear God's judgment. But this passage is entitled to special notice because it shows that God's grace is not to be tied either to ranks of men or to titles. The prophetic office had always been in high repute, nor was the priestly without honor, for it was founded on God's command. But Jeremiah nevertheless declares that there would be no understanding in the priests and in the prophets, because they would become stupefied and astonished. And with regard to the king, we know that he was the representative of Christ, and yet he pronounces the same thing of the king, and also of his counselors, that they, would be, that they would be made blind by the just vengeance of God, so as not to see anything. He afterwards adds, verse 10, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. Some so understand this passage as though the prophet brought forth what was said by the people, for all the most wicked, when oppressed by God's hand, usually cast the blame on him, and in their complaints contend and dispute with him. Hence they think that the prophet here, not in his own person, but in that of the whole people, speaks thus, O Lord, what can this be? Thou surely hast deceived us. Others give somewhat a looser explanation that the prophet here indirectly expostulates with God because he had suffered the false prophets to flatter the people so as to stupefy the minds of all. But a different meaning is what I approve of. The prophet, I think, tauntingly exposes those false adulations by which the prophets had caused the ruin of the miserable Jews by promising them God's forgiveness and by ever announcing favorable predictions. 
God no doubt rendered the Jews their just reward when he suffered them to be deceived by impostors. We indeed know that the world is ever afflicted with this disease, that they seek flatteries as God upbraids them by Micah. Ye seek prophets who promise to you an abundant harvest, an abundant vintage. Micah 2.11 Since then the Jews wished their vices to be spared and not only disliked their faithful and severe reprovers, but also hated them, they had deserved to be thus dealt with. It was God's will that many impostors should assume the prophetic name. Thus it happened that the Jews thought that their peaceable condition would be perpetual, and this, as I had said, is usual with hypocrites. Now the prophet, in abiding strain, exposed here those deceptions, and says, Ah, ah, Jehovah, I surely thou hast deceived this people. For the prophet does not speak in the person of the people, nor does he complain that God permitted so much liberty to false prophets, but he derides those impostors as well as the people. And further, as they were all deaf, he turns to God, as though he had said, Behold, Lord, worthy of this reward are they who have sought flatteries, and have not attended to the holy warnings of thy servants. As then no kind of correction was what they could endure, let them now begin to learn that they have been deceived by others rather than by thee. Footnote. There are various expositions of this verse, but the simpler and the plainer mode would be to take a non-English word as a noun, word, speech, saying with an auxiliary verb, which is commonly omitted in Hebrew. The connection with the foregoing would be obvious and natural, and the saying will be, Alas, Lord Jehovah, surely <coughs> deceiving thou hast deceived... <coughs> Deceiving thou hast deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying, Peace shall be to you, and reached as a sword even to the soul. This would be the language of such as believed the false prophets and considered them as sent by God. But Louth, Henry, Venema, Scott, and others take this view, that God had permitted or suffered the people to be deceived by the false prophets. It is said that this verb in Hithil, Hithil? as the case is here, has sometimes this meaning, and Laos refers as instances to Isaiah and also to Psalms and Proverbs. But the sentiment of the passage in this case would not be very suitable, for according to this view, the cause of the prophet's grief is that God had suffered the people to be deceived. It shall be said in the next verse, seems to, be, seems to put in contrast with this saying, instead of what would be commonly said of the people, God reminds of reminds them of what he would cause to be said and effected. Editor. End footnote. We then see that the prophet ridicules that stupidity in which the Jews had been so long asleep. And the simple meaning is this, that he turned to God. I have said, O Lord Jehovah, surely thou hast deceived this people. Surely, it's to be taken in an ironical sense. That is, it now really appears that they have been deceived, but by whom? They wish, indeed, to throw the blame on thee, but they are justly chargeable with foolish credulity, so that they whom the false prophets have deceived have been rightly dealt with. What they said was, Peace shall be to you. This never came from the mouth of God, for Jeremiah daily thundered and threatened approaching ruin, for he was like a celestial herald who filled every place with terror, but he was not heard. And at the same time, the Jews praised the false prophets who soothed them with various promises. 
We hence perceived that God has, had not spoken peace to them, but that the Jews, not only willingly, but with avidity, laid hold on those things by which the prophets, false prophets sought to gratify them. He afterwards adds, and reached has the sword unto the soul. That is, yet we are now destroyed by fatal evils. The prophets here, prophet here indirectly sets before them those delusive flatteries with which the Jews pleased themselves and shows that they would at length really find out how falsely they pretended the name of God. It follows. Verse 11. At that time shall it be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A dry wind of the high places in the wilderness toward the slaughter of my people, I'm sorry, toward the daughter of my people, not to fan nor to cleanse. Verse 12. Even a full wind from those places shall come unto thee. Now also will I give sentence against them. Jeremiah proceeds with the same prediction. He says that a terrible wind was coming, which which would not only disperse or clear away, but dissipate and overthrow all things. He then expresses how great and how grievous would be the calamity which he had before mentioned. He compares it to dry or arid wind, for... Thatch sometimes means clear and sometimes arid, as as the greatest dryness is found on high places. He means no doubt here the wind which is violent and disturbs the whole atmosphere when there are no clouds and where no trees impede its course. <coughs> Hence he speaks of high and desert places. It is the same as though he had said that so great would be the violence of God's vengeance and so irresistible would be the eruption that it would be like a violent wind when it passes through high regions and through dry land or desert places. He says, towards the way of the daughter of my people, as though he had said that the course of the wind would be such as to bear directly on Judea. The mode of speaking here is well known to all who are in any degree acquainted with the writings of the prophets. The daughter of my people means the people themselves. Come then shall win towards Judea. He then adds, not to scatter nor to cleanse. Husbandmen are wont to winnow the corn when taken from the thrashing floor, that the shafts may be carried away by the wind, but the prophet says that this wind would not be to clear away or scatter the shafts, It will be, he says, a very vehement wind. He means, in short, that God would show so much displeasure towards the Jews that he would no longer chastise them in a moderate degree or use any moderation as he had done previously. For God had already punished the Jews, but he had hitherto acted the part of a physician, having endeavored to heal the vices of the people. As then these corrections have been without fruit, the prophet now says that God's wrath would now come not to cleanse as before, not to scatter the shaft, but to consume everything among the people. He, hence he adds, for the, two verses are, I'm sorry, for the two verses are connected together, a fuller wind, or one if more complete, shall come to them. Some read from these places, so they render non-English word, but it is rather to be taken as noting the comparative degree, that this wind would be much rougher and more violent than other winds, which usually clear the land or scatter away the chaff, and separate it from the corn. Come then, shall a much more violent wind. And come, he says, unto me. God, I doubt, I'm sorry, God, I doubt not, speaks here. 
Some think that the prophet here represents the whole body of the people, and they consider them as saying that there would come a wind which would rush on themselves. But this is too strained, and further, this explanation is disproved by the context, nor can what follows be applied to the prophet. I will now pronounce judgments against them. Here then, God in his office as a judge declares that a wind was nigh by which he would dissipate and overthrow the whole of Judea, Judea and would no more cleanse it. And thus he shows that the Chaldeans would not of themselves come, but would be sent to execute his orders, as though he had said that he would be the author of those calamities which were impending other over the Jews. Come then shall the wind shall wind unto me. That is, it will be ready to obey my orders. And he adds at last by way of an exposition, I will thou speak judgments with them. To speak judgments is to execute the office of a judge or to call to judgment or to summon men to declare their cause as kings are said to speak judgments when they constrain the guilty to render an account of themselves. God briefly intimates that he was hitherto exercised great that he had hitherto exercised great forbearance towards the Jews <coughs> but that as he found that his indulgence availed nothing except that they became more and more ferocious, he declares that he would now become their judge to punish their wickedness. Footnote. The Septuagint version of these two verses is as foreign to the original as it can well be, and the Syriac and the Arabic are nearly the same. The Vulgate gives a fair version, and the meaning as given by the Targum is nearly the same. The latter part of the 11th and 12th are thus rendered by Blaney, a wind that scorcheth the plains in the wilderness shall come toward the daughter of my people, not to window, I'm sorry, not to winnow, nor to cleanse. A full wind for a curse shall come at my bidding. Now even I will proceed judici judicially with them. Horsley differs as to the eleventh verse and renders it thus. The wind that scorcheth, scorcheth the craggy rocks of the wilderness taketh its course against the, the daughter of my people not for winnowing or cleansing. The reason assigned for rendering non-English word for a curse and not from those places, as in our version, is because the enemy did not come from that quarter. But this may be avoided if we consider as or like to understand before wind, uh, to be understood before wind, which is, not, which is no uncommon thing in Hebrew. To refer those or these to the winds implied in winnowing and cleansing, as Calvin does, and also Gattaker and, off, and others, is not satisfactory. I would propose the following version. The dry wind of the cliffs in the wilderness is advancing against the daughter of my people, not to winnow, nor to cleanse. Verse 12. As a full wind from these it shall come for me, then will I myself pronounce judgments on them. The word, non-English word, as Horsley takes it, is a verb, or rather a participle, and it is usual in Hebrew to put a participle in the first clause, and in the second, a verb, as here in the future tense. The verb tense, I'm sorry, the verb means to come upon, so as to tread down or subdue, Judges 5.21.20.43. The effect of this wind is not only to render the air extremely hot and scorching, but to fill it with poisonous and suffocating vapors. Blaney, editor. End footnote.
Um, he afterwards adds, the prophet here concludes the prediction which referred, um, I'm sorry, he afterwards adds, verse 13, behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariots shall be as a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles, woe unto us, for we are spoiled. The prophet here concludes the prediction which referred to the dreadful vengeance that was coming. And he mentions here several similitudes, such as might rouse the Jews and constrain them to fear. He says that the chariots of God would come as clouds and as a whirlwind, and then that his horses would be swifter than eagles. As to the clouds, the whirlwind, and the eagles, for the import of the three similitudes the same, the prophet no doubt intended thus to, forth, to set forth the quickness of God's vengeance. But yet there is some difference we see how clouds suddenly arise and spread over the whole heaven, and thus it happens when a whirlwind is in the air. Hence, when he compares God's chariots to clouds and a whirlwind, it is the same as if he had said that the beginning of the calamity would be sudden, because God would unexpectedly arise after having been apparently asleep for a long time. But when he says that God's horses would be swifter than eagles, he means that it would be easy for God, when once he had begun, to destroy the whole of Judea, as it were in a moment, or at least in a very short time. For we know how swift is the flying of the eagle, but he says that the horses of God will be swifter than the eagles. We now understand the prophet's meaning. For when the Jews derided the threatenings of the prophets, they tauntingly used such a language as this, Oh, we shall at least in the meantime feast cheerfully and joyfully. These prophets will not show us the truth for one hour, but yet many years will pass away before the evil overtakes us. We find profane men in our day who, like, who in like manner trifle with God. And when they cannot wholly despise what God threatens, they yet delay the time and think that they gain something by putting off the day of vengeance. This, then, was the reason why the prophet said that God's chariots would ascend as clouds arise suddenly, and then as a whirlwind as a clear, in a clear sky, and lastly, in a manner swifter than eagles, even in their swiftest course. The prophets in the last place exclaims, exclaims in the name of the whole people, Woe to us, for we are lost. Footnote. Rather, we have been wholly wasted or desolated. The verb is in a reduplicate form and signifies an entire waste or desolation. Verse 13. Behold, like clouds will he ascend, and like a whirlwind will be his chariots. Swifter than eagles his horses. Woe to us, for we have been wholly wasted. The mixture of the tenses is intended to show the certainty of the event. Or we may consider the last line as containing what would be said after the coming of the enemy. What they would have said would have to say was to acknowledge their entire desolation. Editor and footnote. <laughs> he speaks here concisely that he might show that the false prophets, as well as the people, were going astray to their own ruin while they were asleep in their vices and thought their insensibility would escape punishment. He hence exclaims that though all were then seized with, a, with stupor, the people themselves were yet lost. It at length follows verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? 
Here now the prophet expressly and avowedly exhorts the people to repeat, to repent. By bidding Jerusalem to wash from wickedness her heart that she might be saved, he shows that there was no remedy except the Jews were reconciled to God, and that this could not be except they repented of their sins. He has said before that while God was angry, they could not perish, but now confirms the same thing, that thou mayest be saved, wash thine heart from wickedness, as though he had said that there was war between the Jews and God, and that salvation could by no means be hoped for, since God was armed for their destruction and showed himself a judge to punish their vices. He at the same time reminds them of the true way of repentance. It was by washing their heart from wickedness. For hypocrites ever seek to appease God by external rites and observances. But the prophet shows that God cannot be pacified except they from the heart return to him. He then means that the beginning of true repentance is an inward feeling. We now perceive what the prophet means. But they reason foolishly who maintain that repentance is the cause of salvation, because it is said that thou mayest be saved, wash thy heart from wickedness. And the papists lay hold on such passages to set up free will, and they hold that sins are abolished and a punishment remitted through satisfactions made by us. But this is extremely absurd and frivolous. (coughs) For the prophet is not speaking of the cause of salvation. But as I have said, he simply shows that men are extremely thoughtless when they expect a peaceable condition while they carry on war with God, and when he is armed to execute vengeance on them. We are not then to inquire here whether a sinner delivers himself from God's hand by his repentance. But the prophet had only this one thing in view, that we cannot be safe and secure except God be reconciled to us. He further shows that God will not be propitious to us except we repent and that from the heart or from a genuine feeling within. He then adds, How long shall remain within thee the thoughts of thy vanity? He he here touches on the hypocrisy of his own nation, and he in in effect says that whatever excuses they may make, they were yet proved guilty before God, and that their evasions were frivolous, because God penetrated into the inmost recesses of their hearts. He indeed speaks most suitably, for he had to do with with hypocrites who thought that their outward performances pacified God, and they also thought that when they alleged their evasions, they ought to be forgiven, as they could not be condemned by earthly judges. The prophet derives these delusive thoughts. How long shall thoughts of vanity remain within thee? That is, though the whole world were to absolve, absolve thee, what yet would it avail thee? For vain thoughts remain in the midst of thee, that is, in the recesses of thy heart. And God knows them, for nothing is hid from him. There is then no reason for you to think that ye will gain anything by your outward display or your excuses. For God is the searcher of hearts. Let not these thoughts continue within thee. He calls them the thoughts of vanity. The word on means sometimes substance, but it also means power, and sometimes grief, and sometimes vanity or trouble. The prophet means here, I have no doubt, trouble or vanity. But some expounded as signifying lust, but I know not whether it can be so taken. Either of the two foregoing meanings may suit the passage, though vanity seems the best. How long, then, shall thoughts of vanity remain within thee, that is, by which thou deceivest thyself? For when God suspended his vengeance, the Jews thought that they had escaped from his hand. Footnote. The word means also iniquity, wickedness, and this is the sense in which the Vulgate and the Targum have taken it, and also Blaney, the devices of thine iniquity. 
and this corresponds more with the former part of this verse. The whole is as follows. Verse 14. Wash from, evil thine, wash from evil thine heart, O Jerusalem, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall lodge within thee the thoughts of thy wickedness, or, the wicked, or thy wicked thoughts? The word for wash here, according to Parkhurst, is ever applied to express a thorough washing, the washing away of what is inherent, which is, which, sorry, such as the dirt of linen and of clothes. And he says that there is another word, non-English word, which is used when the washing of the surface of anything is intended, such as the washing of hands. Shall lodge is no, it is no objection that this is singular, and that thought plural. It is an idiom. The same exists in Welsh, and in no other form would this sentence be rendered in that language. The present translation is incorrect, as the verb is taken to be in a second person and applied in truth and applied to Jerusalem, which cannot be, as in that case it must have been the, the feminine gender. The correct rendering would be uh, a lot of non-English words. If the verb had followed its nominative case, it would have been in the same number, but as it precedes it, it is singular while the noun is plural. Editor. End footnote. <coughs> they might at the same time have been called the thoughts of trouble or sorrow from the effect. For how could it have been otherwise, but they must have found that they have procured a heavier judgment for themselves by trifling with the indulgence and forbearance of God. Too strange is the explanation given by some who render the words thoughts of grief because the Jews had done many wrongs to their neighbors and caused them unjust vexations. I therefore not doubt I therefore doubt not but that the prophet refers to those deceptive hopes by which the Jews grow more perverse against God so as not to fear any punishment. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that, thou, that since Thou art pleased daily to invite us to repentance, and since our own conscience is a witness, how we have in various ways provoked Thy vengeance, O grant that we may not remain obstinate in our sins, nor harden our minds by perverse delusions, but suffer ourselves to be subdued by Thy word, and so offer ourselves to Thee with a pure and sincere heart, that our whole life may be nothing else but a striving for that newness which Thou requirest, so that, being consecrated to Thee in mind and body, we may ever labor to glorify Thy name, until we may be made partakers of that glory which has been obtained for us by the blood of Thy only begotten Son. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a product of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line.
SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So, once you send us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you've supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you'll be e you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb.swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to repeat, re, sorry, reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the header and the trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And Second Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.